Today's episode is brought to you by Diane Kinlaw of Go Prime Mortgage and Jamie Tulak of EXP Realty. We all go through sorrow. It just comes wrapped differently, right? So even though mine has come wrapped in this package of a brain injury, it doesn't mean my struggle is not the same as yours. Pain is pain. Sorrow is sorrow. And in that aspect, as a wife, I'm learning to give myself grace. Mm -hmm. On days when I can do amazing things and 20 things at one time and I get things done and yes, I'm proud of myself, but on the days that I'm just present and I can be there, that's enough. Thank you for listening to the Girls Who Do Stuff podcast. Visit girlswhodostuff.com. You probably shouldn't Google that. And this is a show where you come as you are with the courage to speak up and tell a better story. And today we have Amy Root, who apparently dressed up for us today, which we are very grateful for when we do our little screenshot. Her. She looks amazing right now. <laughs> uh, and Amy, a an advocate and blogger, and her story is kind of like a... There's a roundabout way as to how she arrived at doing these things. When I say advocate, I'm talking about for individuals with traumatic brain injury. And she's blogged about her journey with her husband, Adam. And so I will happily hand this over to Amy to tell a better story than what I am doing right now. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thank you for the compliments. It's really sweet. Yeah, I have been walking a journey with my husband for 10 years coming up in on May 15th, and he suffered a severe traumatic brain injury, was in a coma for 10 months, and finished his 15th, 16th, and 17th brain surgeries in 2018. We have just cataloged our journey all along. We don't believe it's for nothing. We believe that when you've gone through as much as we have, it's not just for us anymore. It's to share and help and to offer hope to those who are suffering, not just from traumatic brain injury, but any catastrophic event, really teaching them how to involve their local resources and their community and how huge of a role that can play for your recovery process. Yeah. So can, would you start with like sharing what type of injury he had and like where it affected deficits he has from those injuries and like where in his brain and, and all that stuff? It's a very complex question. So I'm going to do the best I can to answer it. So According to Adam's neurologist, there's not one area of his brain that's not affected by his injury. He had with an injury that impacted where his head shook from side to side. It's and called coup contra coup. That's when the brain, coup contra coup, when the brain shakes back and forth in the skull. skull. Yes, yes, back and forth, front and back as well. So he kind of hit it all over. Mm-hmm. Um, it mainly affected his, the largest portion of his injury happened to the left side of his brain in the BRCA center, which is where your speech and language comes from. He also suffered a diffuse axonal injury, which is where the two hemispheres of the brain completely shear apart. With that, you're given less than a 10% chance of actually making it out of a comatose state. So that was his original diagnosis. I was met at the hospital that night telling um, with his, his team saying that he would never speak or understand language ever again because of the severity that suffered in that area of his brain. In 2017, he did a functional MRI, and that functional MRI showed that his brain had rewired 
the entire ability to understand language, speak language, and to communicate had rewired itself to the other side of the brain because neuroplasticity is so fascinating. I was, I was like waiting to see if you were going to say the word because I was going to say like, hey, there's so much that we didn't know about neuroplasticity 10 years ago mm-hmm. and so little that we know about neuroplasticity now that it just proves that the body can do miraculous things when yes. put under yeah. whatever circumstance. Yeah. Yes. And that, that the really cool thing about that is 10 years ago when Adam was injured, they really say, oh, the most of your recovery happens within 18 months. Well, that's not true mm-hmm. because Adam was in a coma for so much of that. That's not true for us. We've seen majority of his recovery happened beyond that because of the ability of the brain to rewire itself and to make those new connections. And my job really as his caregiver and his advocate is to make sure that I'm creating an environment that is going to maximize the ability for the brain to have the right environment to make those new connections and pathways. And I take that very seriously. Yeah. I want to hear about your love story. Tell me how you guys met. (laughs) So like, this is like, so can we just pause for a second? Like, this is how yin and yang Sarah and I are together, right? I'm like, let's geek out over the science. And, and let's like, talk about love story. <laughs> it's so funny because I love that because I'm I'm such a mixture of both. I geek out over the science stuff and I love, love, love that. But I'm so tender-hearted in that 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 like love story aspect and, and Hallmark movies get me every time. <laughs> <laughs> I will I will admit to watching way more say yes to the dress than I ever have in my entire life since the quarantine started just for that tender fluffiness. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Adam and I met actually in 2006. Um, we both worked for Microsoft. And so we met at work and it was almost an instant friendship. But I was a single mom, so I wasn't really in the market to date, nor did I want to. But he was persistent. For six months, he was like nonstop asking. And finally, he caught me on a really bad week at work. And I was like, fine, I'll just go out with you if you'll just leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) Stop asking me for fuck's sake, I'll go. I felt like if I could go, then at least I had an excuse going forward of like, and I'm done, you know? (laughs) I'll throw you a bone if you'll leave me alone. (laughs) Right. But that, that our first date, the very first night, um, I actually called my mom when I left and I said, I met the man I'm going to marry. And she laughed hysterically because I, you know, for so long, I'm like, it's going to be my kid and I against the world. I had no interest in marriage or what that would look like. And I, 10 months later, we were married. (laughs) Wow. Yes. And then you, so tell us about your courtship and your romance and what made you fall in love with him. Part of it was the conversations we had at really first, that first night that we were on our first date he made it very clear. Like in my heart, I knew that I wasn't going to date for attention. I was going to date intentionally. When you have a kid, you just take things a lot more seriously. Mm -hmm. And he said those exact words to me on our first date. He was like, Hey, you know, you're a single mom, you have a child. And he's like, that's not something I take lightly. And I just want you to know I'm dating with intention. Mm -hmm. And I literally like, it took my breath away because those are things I've journaled about. Those are things I was like, Oh my word. It's like, he was reading my personal journal or something. And then he just had that old fashioned kind of guy about him where he, I, you know, he opens every door for me. He is so gracious and kind. And most guys are not quick to share their heart or their dreams. They internalize a lot of it. And he was so quick to just open up his um, heart to me. Mm -hmm. And we 
decided like he had just moved into his house. And so we spent most of our dating and courtship remodeling his house. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh my word, if we make it through this, that's it. We we are meant to be, right? But we Energy wasn't just using you for free labor. I was like, yes, I thought the same thing. Was he going a free labor? <laughs> like, yes, I have somebody to like do this with and then Oh no, I was not handy. If anything, I held him back. <laughs> if anything, I'm sure he was like, why did I even ask you? <laughs> But the cool thing about that was I learned so much, you know, I never learned those skills before. And so he taught me so much. And in that time, I learned that we worked really well side by side. We just worked. We made a such a good team. And I say that to this day, like we just make such a good team. It really started when we were dating. So we actually planned our whole wedding before his proposal, (laughs) like venue and all, (laughs) Because I knew that our proposal wasn't like, I knew our um, engagement was going to be short. Right. And uh, so so how did you we went out, we traveled back and forth from Oregon where his family lives to Washington, Seattle area where I lived. And one of the trips back home, we took the long way and drove up the coast and we stopped and played at the beach. And he had worked it out with my daughter at the time to have the camera ready And we were just building sandcastles. And then all of a sudden, like he got down on one knee and just out of nowhere, like I'm literally in the sand building a sandcastle (laughs) and, and popped the question. So, and it was funny because even though I knew it was coming, I was still really surprised. Well, he had to do it that way to surprise you. He would have done something elaborate. You'd have been like, I know it's about to happen. (laughs) Yeah. It was so sweet because it was just in our Monday moments, making it so special. And that's, now, something I try to carry out, like making our mundane moments every day a little special. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, so from when you guys got married to the accident, how long had you guys been married? Two years and eight months. Okay. Okay. Not very long at all. Right. Um, first, the first year, like our first anniversary, in that first year of marriage, we moved from Seattle, Washington to Raleigh, North Carolina. So it's a big change. Like first year, mm-hmm. you know, you're married and then on top of it, you're doing a cross country move. And I remember sitting at a Ruth Chris steakhouse in Cary and toasting to the fact that we survived our first year without killing each other. <laughs> it was like, it was so wonderful. There was so much laughter. There was so much like enjoyment in that, but there was a lot of realness in that moment too, of like toasting to the fact that we survived. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then the second year, like the second year and a half was just beautiful and amazing. And I felt like I literally every day felt like I was living in a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. Just the growth that came out of that season. And I remember sitting and talking with him being like, I don't know what's happening in our relationship, but something big is happening because just the growth that was happening and, and the connection we felt, it was so strong. And then what do you think was, was contributing to that? I think we were being much more intentional about time together. We were being more intentional about wanting to grow. But I also didn't grow up with a very good example of what marriage looked like. And so I started doing a lot of research for myself of, well, what kind of wife do I want to be? What does that look like for me? Mm-hmm. Uh, how can I love my husband well? But more than that, how can I make him know that I respect him? Mm-hmm. Because I know that for him and the conversations we had, being loved and cherished was what I needed, but being respected was really the core value of what he needed. Mm-hmm. And so we spent 
a lot of time discussing what that looked like. Like, what does it mean for him to be respected and how can I do that well? And I think when we, when you invest in your partner that way, when you invest in not just what you can gain from a relationship, but how you can give well, it totally radically changes that relationship. And now in hindsight, I know it was in preparation to be able to stand on by his bedside for months without him saying anything and have zero regrets because Mm -hmm. having this year and a half that we were able to build this time and to learn that about each other, I was able to stand and still to this day where he doesn't recognize me as his wife, I can still stand on the fact that I've, I have no regrets before this. Mm -hmm. Yep. So talk to us about the day of the accident. (laughs) <laughs> okay if i get teary i'm sorry it's just fine. no apologies it is i mean it's life. there's no reason to apologize for responding emotionally to a trauma like this <laughs> like you're talking to two social workers right like there's no <laughs> I'm like, pretend like the thousands of people who are going to listen to this after are just not even there right like it's all good <laughs> um, the day of adam's injury was really special and again, it was like, I, our faith plays such a big part of our, of our journey. And so I'm, I cannot discuss what happened and took place before the actual injury happened without just knowing that God gave me a gift I needed to be able to carry me through. Mm-hmm. So on the way to Adam rode motocross, he's been riding motocross since he was in middle school. He rode semi-pro in, in Colorado throughout college. It's just one of his favorite things to do. And he got my daughter involved in riding motocross. And it was just, you know, he worked really hard. So he definitely played hard and he was an adrenaline junkie. So this was just the way he had that outlet. And on May 15th of 2010, we decided as a family, we were going to spend the day out at the motocross track. And as we were driving out there, it's just all these errands kept coming up that kept prolonging us from getting there. So Adam and I just started having a conversation and I recently had a situation with a couple different friendships that just felt that I, I just didn't know where my place was in those friendships. And I was really struggling with that. And I was struggling with the kind of friend that I felt like I needed. And I was just sharing that with Adam and uncharacteristically, he just started telling me how thankful he was that I was his best friend. Just how much he loved me and cherished me and honored me. It was one of the greatest gifts he's ever given me. And it's the last conversation that I had with him for nearly a year and a half. And it's the last conversation to this day that he actually knew me as his wife. So that, that would take place about an hour, maybe a couple hours before his injury happened. He wrecked on a field. Um, he wrecked um, at, on the track doing a jump. What happened was the track had reversed directions four days prior to his injury without taking the proper protocols that they needed to. So when, his, when he was doing a double jump, his bike landed in a, in a patch of sand and it threw him directly over his handlebars. He landed on his head and instantaneously was in a coma. Uh, He was airlifted from there to the University of North Carolina. I was not allowed to be in the life flight with him. So I had somebody drive me to the hospital. And I got to the emergency room 
and we were escorted directly into a conference room, which now I know is never a good sign. <laughs> um, when we were in the conference room, we were met by a team that asked me to come and identify my husband's body. I really thought he hadn't made it. I knew that we had made recovery efforts on the field before he was lifelighted. So I really felt like they were going to take me down to the morgue and I'm going to have to identify his body. We started wandering this, like the hallways of UNC, which was on a Saturday. And it just felt like we were the only ones in the hospital. I don't know why, but I'm walking with a nurse, a doctor and a security officer. And I felt like I was in a twilight zone. Like I'm the, I it's just, there was nobody in the hallways. There was nobody anywhere. And we were just walking what felt like nowhere. It took a while to figure out that Adam was taken into emergency surgery or they assumed that it was Adam, that they didn't have any identification and that I would be notified as to what was next. 13 hours later was my first update. And that was when I was told Adam was probably never going to speak or understand language ever again. He most likely would never make it out of a comatose state. And that's only if he survived the next 24 hours, which they gave him less than 10% chance of doing so. What is running through your mind when you're sitting in that waiting room for 13 hours? Like, what are all the thoughts going on? It's interesting. You definitely go through the, the wide range of emotions and thoughts. I had a lot of clarity that happened because a year prior, like almost exactly to the day, a year before his injury happened, Adam was out mowing the yard and was stung by a bee and had such a severe allergic reaction. He went into anaphylactic shock which I thought he was having a heart attack. So I called the emergency room, like the um, 911 in hysterics. Like I was hysterical. They wouldn't, they wouldn't let me near him. They wouldn't let me in the ambulance. I was hysterical. And then I got to the hospital and I was like, oh, I got stung by a bee, I'm fine. And so this situation, I stayed so calm because I'm like, oh, I'm gonna get to the hospital and he's gonna wake up and just tell me he's fine. Like that was what went through my thought. So that was almost a gift because I stayed completely calm. I didn't go into hysteria. And so I went through emotions of really not knowing what to expect. Like Adam had blown out his knee before in um, motocross. And at this point, I had no idea it was his brain. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking they're just doing emergency surgery on his knee. Um, no big deal. And so I just started writing a list of all the things I was thankful for. Like anything that came to my head, I just made a list. And it ended up being like about 300 things that day. And I just, I've always learned that if you can find the things you're thankful for, you'll find contentment in anything. And so I just sat outside, like there's this, the ICU waiting room has this like small little patio area that goes off of it. And it's all surrounded by brick wall. So it's not really like friendly and nice. You just see the up above. It's just really cold and dark, but I was sitting out on that patio, just being writing all the things I was thankful for. And then I, the first update that I got was pretty severe. And so I was told that I needed to call family members um, and let them know that there's a very good chance Adam's not going to make it. And if in, at that point it was time to call family, I didn't have a relationship, you know, when we, our courtship and our was so quick and swift. And then we moved away from family, um, I didn't have a relationship with his parents. So making that phone call was to this day, still one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. You know, how do you call someone you don't really know and say, Hey, your son was in an accident and chances are he's not going to make it. Mm -hmm. That was really tough. I went through everything from being thankful to just like, is this really happening? (laughs) Right. 
Well, and I think it's amazing too, that like as much as his brain has recovered over the course of the past 10 years, right? Like in the moment, the brain's ability to protect itself, right? And to compartmentalize like, so it knew what it knew, which was the last time Adam was in the hospital, he popped up out of the bed and was like, hey, honey, what are you worried about? So like you're, it's self-protected, right? To be like, to, to let you get through those 13 hours without collapsing and coming a part of the seams without knowing any other information. So it allowed me to, because I was able to stay calm and not be hysterical, it allowed me to absorb the information as it was coming in. You know, everything that they were throwing out at me at the time seemed like a foreign language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Years now it I- is a, it is, it's an entirely different language that people like, there's a reason that you only take in 10% of what doctors tell you. It's because they speak three other languages and they're talking at them. They're talking to, you are being talked at through all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're not being talked with. Right. In fact, the same thing I say now, um, I always tell Adam's doctors, look, I was the first member on this team. I'm going to be the last member standing. So you're going to work with me as a team member because it's true they'll talk at you they won't include you and so that was my way of saying hey like you're gonna include me yeah you're like i am the ceo of this like let's make that clear (laughs) and whatever decisions they were they choose to make right i'm the one that has to live with the repercussions of those decisions positive or negative Mm -hmm. so i'm not being included as a team member especially since i do it in a way that i i feel is respectful and kind I'm not coming at them being like, why isn't this working? Or why aren't you doing it like this? Let's talk through this. Let's work through this together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's gained me a lot of respect in the medical field and the medical world. Because you are talking to them like a team rather than us against them kind mm-hmm. of a thing. Yeah. And I learned to speak their language. And that's the other thing too. You learn you mm-hmm. their language. You learn to, 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 okay, I'm going to ask this question. And I'm going to ask it this way, right? They want concise, precise. They don't want to ha- have you ask the same question five different ways. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the times I learned how to write my questions down and make sure mm-hmm. that everything is streamlined. And I got to the point where in several hospitals and talking with families, my questions were the only ones being answered. Mm-hmm. And you become the and, teacher's pet, so to speak. And they're happy to answer your questions because you're making their life easier. Right. You're like, oh yeah, I love her. I'll answer her questions. Right. And it's so funny. Like I giggle because I'm like, I knowing that you're working with neurosurgeons, right? Like, so when you're... <laughs> So like, there's like a hierarchy, right? Of like being able to get your questions answered in such a way that you understand them when you're dealing with healthcare providers, right? Like you have the social workers who will sit down with you and like unpack what the doctors just said, right? And the case social worker, that's true. Or a case manager, right? Like, or yeah, right. So if you have someone like me or Sarah that would sit down and unpack with them, just saying, and then you'd have the, the bedside nurse and then the nurse manager. And then maybe the internist and then the other specialist. And like at the top of this hierarchy of the people who didn't understand, maybe their delivery could use some assistance would be the neurosurgeons because they literally are brain surgeons. (laughs) They're like, I'm just going to fix this right here and move on. Like, I remember I had a conversation. I had a, a patient that had this benign meningioma in her brain, right? And it kept growing back. And her husband and her twin sister and her brother, like everybody was like, can someone please explain to me why this is happening? And like the neurosurgeon came in and was talking at them. And I looked at him and I was like, could you draw them a picture? And he looked at me like I had six heads and I was like, 
yeah, but they're not understanding what you're saying. Can you just draw, explain it in a different way, please? Mm-hmm. It'll take you five minutes and then you can go on your way. Right. And, and like, then they'll be happy and they won't be asking you the same question 20 times because they exactly. don't understand. <laughs> and then guess what? After he absorbed the like, oh, maybe I should do this, drew the picture and moved on. And they were for the three days, they were fine. But like, it's those types of things that healthcare providers, I think, need to understand and need better training on, right? Like, book out there called Compassionomics. If you haven't read it, it's fantastic. And it actually like unpacks this idea that scientific, like scientific evidence proves that caring, especially from a healthcare provider level, actually makes a huge impact in somebody's Mm -hmm. recovery and in their aspect to heal. And so it's two doctors that write this book and they did several studies uh, and it's amazing. And it totally unpacks that. Mm -hmm. I think every single healthcare provider, that should be like mandatory for them to read that book. Mm -hmm. But it's true. I remember Adam um, about two or three weeks after he was injured, he was getting ready to go into about his sixth surgery. So at this point in time, when they're doing so many surgeries on, on his brain, he had about six different lengths of hair. Okay. Like we're talking, it just looked ridiculous. And we're in the ICU. They won't let me just take a razor to his head and cut it. So I asked them, since he was going into surgery, I said, do you think that you could just cut his hair, like just shave it all so it's just all off and not these crazy lengths? And the resident neurosurgeon at the time looked at me and said, what do I look like, a barber? I didn't just pay $200,000 to become a neurosurgeon so I could cut your husband's hair. Did you tell him to go fuck himself? Because that may have been what would have come out of my mouth. Like, what? (laughs) I literally was dumbfounded. I'm thinking... Because I, in my head, I'm thinking, you're not even the one that's going to shave his head. It's going to be the OR nurse, you know, like. Or your resident or your first year or. Right. But how hard would it have been to do something so simple that would have made such. What a dick. Yes, that's the word for him. That is exactly what I thought of like, he's a dick. (laughs) And I can. I would have been like, yeah, I think you're a very well paid barber. Can you please just make sure that when you're in there, just shave it all off. Thanks. I can honestly say I followed that resident's career. He's not no longer at UNC, but he'll wherever he is, he'll be a hospital I will avoid because of that right. situation. But I will say this now, like Adam having been back at UNC for multiple brain surgeries in 2018, dealing with residents and all of that again, the team that they've had now is amazing. So I know that they've made changes off of some of the experiences and some of the things I was able to go back and tell the team and, and say, hey, like you might want to consider this or, or mm-hmm. make some changes. And I'm, I've definitely seen UNC step up their game. So I just feel like I have to throw that in there. Well, and I can say I've been in healthcare for 20 years and up until I made the shift and whatever, but I have seen, right, those positive changes that have come from the hospitals that have invested in that patient first and customer experience first with all of the different ratings that they have to submit for and and all of these things. The ones that take it seriously and recognize that they can make a positive impact in other people's lives in these moments of crisis and bring things out in a different way and, and create different outcomes are the ones that have that retention of like those raving fans. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you don't think about doctors having raving fans and hospitals having raving fans and any healthcare CEOs out there listening. You need to consider if your practice, if your 
organization if your facility has raving fans because if they don't go talk to amy (laughs) well the other cool thing about this is they were actually showing studies of that patients don't mind waiting they'll wait and wait and wait or they'll drive 100 miles if it means that doctor or that nurse or that they're going to have the compassion and they're going to listen to you studies and studies show that over and over and over and that's true for us we travel hours hours for some of adam's specialists because it's worth their bedside manners. It's worth them, including me as a team member, and it's worth them understanding kind of our trajectory of where we want to go and not being like, well, that's not possible because we've learned anything is possible. Yeah. Let me ask a question about the coma because like for in in my marriage, we have like our, you know, wills and our forms filled of like advanced directives. Correct. Like Matt's not allowed to keep me in there for 10 months. Right. (laughs) No, I, yeah, I'm kind of at that that. for you. And like what, and this is no judgment. I really do want to understand this because it makes me go, well, maybe my thinking is not in alignment. You know what I mean? With my, with what I actually want and my wishes. So what made you stay the whole, like what made you not say, okay, it's been this been long enough or whatever. I don't even know what language to use for that. To be sure. honest, I can totally help with that. So there's a couple, there's a couple different aspects. I think this idea of a coma is so skewed. We have TV's version of like, Oh, they just should wake up and everything is fine. Oh <laughs> a coma doesn't work like that. It's, no, it it's doesn't. Ages. And so even though Adam was in a certain stage for a long period of time, showing that he wasn't making progress, there was always something that like led on. I never had the choice of like, well, are you going to just pull the plug or whatever? He was never on life support. He was never on those types of things right. where I was faced with having to make a life or death situation for him. And I'm so thankful for that. He just wasn't waking up. Like he wasn't right. alert right. to the point of, but they were still doing EEGs. They were still doing. He's still breathing and functioning like, on his own. He's just not waking up. He right. was on a ventilator. He was definitely trained. But he just wasn't waking up. But the thing is, is, and they kept saying the fact that he was so sick. Like Adam had so many complications. Mm-hmm. He still to this day likes to be that 1% that if something could happen and go wrong, he is that 1%. For example, he ended up with E. coli in his cerebral fluid, which meant like his shunt and everything that was already surgically placed in his brain had to totally come out. Mm-hmm. Like it became life and death. And he's gone through several of these things throughout his journey. And so with that being said, we, it was just always this like, well, he's sick. Like, we don't know what this is going to look like. Mm-hmm. What was that time like for you as his wife? Because you still have a daughter. Like, you're, you know what I mean? Like, how are you functioning and managing? Okay. I have, I, well, I want to go back. I want to go back to what you were saying about kind of advanced directives and having that paperwork in place, because I think that's really important. And I really want to talk about that for a second. Mm-hmm. Adam and I didn't have those difficult conversations prior to um, his injury. And we actually had a meeting set up with an attorney one week after his injury. It was scheduled for a week later. And we were supposed to go through an, a, a scheduling like a living will. We didn't have mm-hmm. a living will in place. So what happened was three months into Adam's hospitalization because he kept getting sick. He was like back and forth in surgery, so sick, all this stuff. In walks the guardian ad litem into Adam's hospital room. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Like just nobody told me she was coming. She just walks in and she's like, oh, I'm here to determine your 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 husband's competency level. I'm like, okay, well, he's in a coma. So there's not really, I mean, how, what do you, what's to determine, right? 
So she's like trying to ask Adam questions, totally non-responsive. He's not blinking right now for yes and no. He's not squeezing fingers. He's not responding to any commands. And she said she finishes her assessment and she goes, okay, well, you'll get a notification as to when to show up for court. And I literally like am dumbfounded and just blown away. I'm like, court, what are you talking about? She goes, well, you, if you want to be a guardian of your husband, you're going to have to go fight for guardianship rights. Like, how am I not just already his guardian? Because you're I'm, his wife. Who are you fighting? <laughs> you're his wife. Who at the hospital started something and didn't tell you? Thank you, social worker. <laughs> I kid you not. Oh, my God. So I get handed this piece of paper and I now have to show up to court because there's Adam was in a coma for so long and the the hospital wanted to cover their butts. There's no piece of paper other than my marriage certificate showing that like anybody can actually make decisions for Adam, that they can handle his day to day stuff. Right. So I get to the courts two weeks later. Hold on. I have to pause this for a second. So our listeners understand that most you can go back and check your state regulations but i will tell you 99 percent of the time at the state level the spouse or next of kin is the one to make those decisions you don't need any extra papers you don't need an advanced directive in place like for legal for financial for legal matters there's a, a power of attorney issue but for medical decisions 99 percent of the time every single state has a regulation that says it falls to the spouse that's correct and that is okay. really I just want to um, however, clarify this. After a certain number of time or a period of time, they start to cut, fight against even medical decisions. So that is very true for the initial injury and for the initial onset, as long as they can start seeing progression. But at this point, we weren't seeing progression in Adam. He was beginning to deteriorate. Decisions still had to be made. And, and we had a very difficult family situation. His Parents and I didn't always see eye to eye, and that was really hard. And so I think that was where the hospital was trying to cover in and, and step in. But I, so I show up to the courtroom, and I didn't even know what I was. I just thought that they were going to say, "Oh, sure, okay, you're married, your marriage looks good. Like here you go, you can have your life back." That was anything but the case. Um, what happened that day in court was I was awarded what's considered a general guardian. So I have decision-making rights over Adam's day-to-day, his healthcare, and his finances. Adam was the breadwinner of our family. I was a stay-at-home mom at the time since we moved to North Carolina. And so every single penny of our income was under Adam's name. That day that I was awarded general guardian, all of our finances were split 50-50. All of our accounts were joint. Everything had to be completely cut. And from that day forward... Any money coming in as under Adam's name could only go to provide for Adam. It couldn't provide for me, couldn't provide for my daughter. Nothing could provide for us as a family. And Adam could only cover one third of all of our living expenses because he only made up one third of the household. Still to this day, we are under that guardianship law. It's one of the most frustrating aspects of my journey. And I can say that like, I can say that 18, you know, 17 brain surgeries later, so many hospitalizations the day-to-day of what it takes to, to take care of Adam is easier than dealing with my legal guardianship aspect and all of the paperwork and the administration. Everything there is frustrating. Our title sponsors for this show are Diane Kinlaw and Jamie Tulak. Whether you're looking to purchase a new home or wish to refinance, why not seek the counsel of a friend who happens to know the triangle housing market better than the back of her hand? 
As your local lender, Diane Kinlaw knows how important this area is to you because it's her home too. That's why she's made it a goal not to just be the best loan officer around, but a community leader supporting small businesses with referrals and networking events and supporting local charities with frequent fundraisers. If you're looking to move to Holly Springs or the surrounding area, or maybe interested in a refinance to lower your term or rate, Diane offers a wide array of programs to fit your family's needs. Let her be a part of your path home. A home doesn't have to be a dream. Let Diane make it a reality. You can contact us at www.goprime.com and search for Diane or call 919-624-9541. GoPrime Mortgage Incorporated, company NMLS number 69551. Diane Kinlaw, NMLS number 1600777. GoPrime is an equal housing opportunity lender. Today's show sponsor, Jamie Tulak of eXp Realty, has a passion for serving clients and nearly a decade of industry experience as a top producing realtor and designer. Jamie Tulak of eXp Realty will help you reach your real estate goals. Whether you're buying, selling, investing, or renting in today's market, having an experienced real estate expert working for you is crucial. And don't forget to ask her about her hometown heroes credit for military, police, firefighters, teachers, and medical providers. Contact Jamie Tulak today at 559-707-1913. That's 559-707-1913. MRP certified. So the takeaway to this is to plan ahead and Do have all this in know. writing. The only thing that's a, yeah. a guardianship, the only thing that supersedes a guardianship is a durable power of attorney. Mm-hmm. So that is what I, and I have on my Facebook page, there is an eight minute and also under, if you go to Root Ramblings on Instagram under our IGTV, there's an eight minute video explaining into detail kind of what this looks like. So you can go there and learn more about that. But with that being said, we, I was awarded his general guardian. So now every single penny that comes in under Adam's name can only be to provide for Adam. Mm -hmm. So, and everything that we do as a household, I have to be able to prove at the end of year and my end of year accounting that it went to Adam and why and how it benefited him. So it's very, I'm like, y'all, that's a load of bullshit. Right. Because we know what goes into caretaking, right? As parents, as spouses, as children, right? Like we understand that if our, and especially as social workers, I mean, we have a different, like we have extra in this, right? Like (laughs) we have an extra understanding. But like when you're talking about like providing care, like if you were to monetize, right? Like put an hourly rate on what. on what you do for him right like how can that be even it doesn't make sense to me in my head I can't wrap my head around the fact that they're saying like your care doesn't count right now if I divorce Adam the argument is if I divorce Adam and just kept my like I could still be married to him quote unquote married but if I divorced him and had the piece of paper then there's no longer that conflict of interest he could then pay me as his caregiver it would free up our finances. <laughs> I just, I can't even, I can't even North Carolina. What are you doing? No, it's not like just none of this makes sense. It's not just North Carolina. We were in Washington state. We were in Oregon state. All of these states have laws to protect. And I get it right. Because yeah. They have to be able to protect the person who's injured so that people aren't just squandering their wealth away. Right. Absolutely. We understand why it's there. However, what we're fighting right now, within the state of North Carolina 
there is a, it's called Rethinking Guardianship Act, and we're a part of that. And we are fighting for spousal amendments specifically into this so that, okay, mm-hmm. 10 years later, I have followed all of the rules. I've crossed, I've crossed every T and dotted every single I perfectly. So at what point in time are you going to let me handle our household under the new normal that it right. is? Because you've just been biding your time to get all your little piggies on his, like it's, <laughs> you spent okay. 10 years, like I just, I can't, my, my advocate heart is like, I'm all worked up of your time. So now we've gotten to this point in the journey of what the love story and how your relationship and how it developed the experience itself. And what I found, and I wrote it down because it really like, I was like, whoa, I didn't know that where you said that that was the last conversation before his accident was the last time he recognized you as his wife. So then my question is like, what do you miss? Because if he, if he doesn't recognize you as your as his wife, you still see you are like no, I identify as his wife. I'm his wife. I'm his advocate. I'm his caregiver. What do you miss? I think I, I need to answer that twofold because I want to address what I have now before I talk about what I miss. If that's okay, yeah. what, what Adam does really well, even though he doesn't know we're married, is he still cherishes me really well. He still honors me really well. He does that by knowing that. I'm special to him. In fact, he calls me his special little lady friend. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm either his girlfriend or his special little lady friend. So we're getting ready to celebrate 13 years of marriage in August. And if he's still calling me his girlfriend, I'm doing something right. Yes. <laughs> um, so there's definitely that side of it. The other, the part that I miss, I, I so miss the day-to-day companionship of sharing what my day looked like or bouncing ideas and and planning for the future together. Mm -hmm. I miss that day-to-day companionship so much. I have to remind myself to be the wife and not the caregiver because it's easy to step into the role of being a caregiver. And I hate, I hate being identified as the caregiver. I mean, if I'm honest, if you don't see me as Adam's wife first, I'm I'm not doing, I'm not doing my part. Well, then Mm -hmm. I want people to identify me and see that role. Well, before they see me as his caregiver, because Adam loves me so well. And the first thing people say is they always notice what I do for him, but they miss him opening the door for me. They miss him being kind to me. They miss him cleaning up the dishes and and the laundry because he sees it and I don't even have to say anything. Sometimes I feel like he treats me better than some of my friend's spouses whose brains are perfectly fine. Yeah. So I try to focus on that rather than what I miss because what are, I love it. Cause I want to go off that word miss. Cause you were like, yeah, I can talk about the things I miss, but oh, what I really want to focus on is the things that other people miss. They miss seeing how Adam loves me and how he cherishes me now. So what are all those things that people miss that you wish they didn't miss about your marriage now? I think it's so easy physically to see what I do for him, especially if you're in the same room as us and, and you're watching how we interact. But if you closely watch Adam and the way that he looks at me, the way he smiles at me, sometimes even when he's frustrated and he's angry and he's, I'm the one he turns to and he's mouthing the swear word. Like the fact that I, he, I'm his safe person in that, I just think that feels special to me. But he'll reach for my hand. He'll open the door. The other night I, we, I was going through a really hard time and I was just crying. I was just upset. And his first reaction was to pull me close and to 
holds me. And he thought I was sick because I don't, I don't cry very often. I don't lose it. So for him to have that natural reaction of just like, let me make it better. What can I do? Just that's what I wish people could see Mm -hmm. instead of his deficits first. It's easy to see his deficits, but if you really look at Adam and see the the man he is, that's a gift. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the the reflection of right, like, like that's what every that's the person first movement, right? Like that's and everyone, whether you have something that is whether you're not hypertensive, you're a person with hypertension, right? Like you're not yeah. schizophrenic, you're a person with schizophrenia you're not brain injured. You're a person who has a brain injury. Like it doesn't, every single person should be treated as person first. I think that's hard. Like I've even had to work with Adam's speech therapist in the last year. We've had the same speech therapist for the last couple of years. Love her to pieces, but she wanted Adam to own his story. And she kept saying, working with him on being able to say, hi, my my name is Adam Root. I need you to give me time. I have a brain injury. Like that's what she was working on him to say because he takes the time to process and, and before he can say mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm. And I had to stop her and be like, stop telling Adam to tell people that he has a brain injury. I don't want that to be his identity. Mm-hmm. Like it should just be, my name is Adam. Give me just a minute of time. I, I need time to process. Why do you have to include the brain injury piece? That's mm-hmm. not that's not who he is. Well, and I would think too that if he's training himself to say that over again, he's training his brain to think I have a brain injury rather than training. I'm injured. Right. Right. Rather than training his brain to rewire for I am not injured. <laughs> right. Yeah. But like the injury is always going to be there, but you can just say, I need, you know, right. like you're saying, I need time. I'm a person that needs extra time. <laughs> yeah. It would like that language creates the block where the brain won't rewire itself for new. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell Adam he's the strongest man I know. And he is a warrior that has fought battles that nobody else will understand and how proud I am of him. That That's what I want his identity to be in. He's my warrior. And he is the strongest fighting man I know. What is it that you want people to know about you, the wife, Adam, the husband, and the root couple? That's a hard question. Because <sighs> I never just take my role so personal like that. Like somebody seeing me as Amy Root, the wife, right? I would say in general, as wives, we need to be better about no matter what your journey looks like, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through. We, we all have challenges. We all have difficulties. We've all experienced pain. We all go through sorrow. It just comes wrapped differently, right? So even though mine has come wrapped in this package of a brain injury, it doesn't mean my struggle is not the same as yours. Pain is pain. Sorrow is sorrow. And in that aspect, as a wife, I'm learning to give myself grace. Mm-hmm. On days when I can do amazing things and 20 things at one time and I get things done and yes, I'm proud of myself, but on the days that I'm just present and I can be there, that's enough. And and to give myself the grace to, to just live in that moment and that's okay. So I think as a wife, I guess I'm including myself in wives period into this like right place. What do you want to say to people listening and they're because in my head I'm putting myself in other people's shoes and I'm like I'm imagine people listening to this and being like oh my god I feel so bad for her oh I don't want that at all 
So what do you want people, what do you want to say to people who are going, oh my God, I feel so bad for her. She right. given up her what? life or she's right. up her marriage or she, whatever story that they're creating. You know what I mean? What like, story do you want people to tell about you? I think what I want people to see is that there's joy in the journey. You know, it doesn't, to me, I don't want people's pity or to feel sorry for us. We have such an amazing relationship, Adam and I do. And we have a level of intimacy that I'm not sure we could have ever gained had we not gone through and had to learn how to communicate. Adam's had to relearn how to speak three times in the last 10 years. So he's had to relearn how to walk three times in the last 10 years. That level of letting me take care of him and that level of vulnerability. Yes. Mm-hmm. The, like that vulnerability, I think is so unique and special to us. And, and like I said, the intimacy that has come from that, we can have conversations, full conversations without words, because we've had to learn how to speak to each other and understand each other, not using words. Mm-hmm. And I want people to see the there's gifts in the journey you're facing. There's gifts in the difficulties you're facing. But just like I did on the very first day of Adam's injury, finding the things I'm thankful for, that's that's how we create the commitment. That's how we can see the gifts. And I want people to start seeing that my life is a gift. Every day I have with Adam is such a precious gift. It's not a burden. Adam never wears me out. He's not a burden to me. If anything, I feel like it's such an honor to be his helpmate. It's such an honor to take care of him. I want people to see that. I don't want them. I want them to see how incredibly beautiful our love and our life has come become because of this, not to feel sorry for us. There's been too many good things that have come from it. Yep. Awesome. Love it. All righty. We're going to hit up the lightning round real quick. So I'm just going to ask you a few questions and just say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Okay. What is the number one thing on your bucket list? Travel. Okay. What is your favorite place in the world? Oh, my home. Okay. How do you unwind? Quiet time. What does quiet time look like? Sometimes journaling to myself, just writing it, writing all my thoughts, purging. If you could go back and give yourself advice, what age would you go back to and what would you tell yourself? Okay. So I'm approaching my 40th birthday in a couple of weeks. <laughs> I would totally go back to my, my like 29, 30 year old self and just say, stop caring what other people think about you. Yep, stop comparing yourself to other people and stop caring what other people think and just live for what matters most to you. Right. Such a theme. I love that. What keeps you up at night? Not doing enough, not being enough for Adam. Oh my God. So like we are. That is the our, theme for today. Apparently. That is like, that was the same exact answer that our last guest gave when we were like, did you have a night? Not doing enough. Yeah. <laughs> like, it really look, does me up at night y'all you are enough you are doing enough you are like more than doing enough right like you get to write that story you get to write that theme and miss amy root you are enough that's all i'm gonna say what is something that no one knows about you i feel like i'm an open book lately i would say that what most people are surprised about me is how introverted i am okay and what is next for you? That's an awesome question. And it's going to be a couple sentences because 
I've taken this time and season of quarantine to prioritize what matters and to really like think about where is my time being spent and is it is it producing fruit in the areas of my life that matter? And so I quit my job. Like I do not have another job lined up and I just quit my job because I was in a situation where I was working so many more hours and the pay wasn't worth the hours that I was putting in and it was taking me away from my priorities. I have no idea what's next, but I am not afraid. I have no fear behind it. I'm just excited. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. That's very exciting. And, and y'all, what's next for her is she's taking over the world in the healthcare system of educating these doctors. Like, whoo, she's a force by creating these teams and communities of saying this, being an advocate and teaching other families how to advocate for their family members. Like, that's yeah, there's such a service for other families of teaching mm-hmm. them how to talk the language to the doctors, what's to say, mm-hmm. what questions to ask. So we don't just work with families. Like while that's something I like, like I can do, my passion is educating the healthcare providers. They need education too now, right? Because people are surviving catastrophic injuries at a level that nobody has ever thought would, would ever be possible. And there's no resources out there. Teaching them how to talk with the family, helping them to learn how to communicate effectively, but also putting tools in their hands to help family members grow their own community support. Yeah, she's going to change the healthcare system, y'all. I'm telling you. Totally. How can our listeners reach you? Yeah. So the best way to reach me in the way that you'll get the fastest response is definitely on Instagram, which is at Root Ramblings. DM us that way. We are pretty quick to respond. We do work with families via Zoom calls and helping them kind of process things. We also work with healthcare providers that way as well. So that's the best way to reach me. Um, You can email us at rootramblings at gmail.com as well. Amy, thank you so much for being on the show today, for looking fabulous. Oh, we got to do a screenshot too. Yes, we got to get a screenshot because she does look fabulous and we can't let that go without being shown. And for showing up as your vulnerable self with your whole heart and sharing your love story. And it's a love story that just continues. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. And again, for our listeners, if you enjoy what you hear, please make sure to leave us a a rating and review um, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find us at girlswhodostuff.com. I am Jenny Midgley. I am Sarah Madras. And you do you, boo. We love making this stuff for you. You can help us out by subscribing to this podcast and follow us on social media.